Newcomers, I hope you look into cutting through the matrix.com website and help yourself to the free audios that are there for download. Remember, two of the sites listed on the com site are the official sites. They all carry audios. They all carry transcripts, too, in English for print-up uh, of a lot of the talks I've given. And if you want uh, transcripts in other languages, go into Alan Watts Sentient, sentinel.eu for transcripts in the ones of your choice. Remember, too, you are the audience that bring me to you because I'm, I, and this is not a business, and I, I'm not here because I like doing what I do. I'm only here because it was time to come out and basically start and try to turn the whole patriot movement around. That was kind of navel-gazing. They didn't understand the big picture of eugenics, of the world system that was coming into play, and that it wasn't just one country involved or two countries. It was a whole planet that was moving along in an ordered fashion run by a few at the top, a few organizations, uh, very old organizations. I've had many names down through the centuries. They eventually morphed into the one that we uh, is, is out in the open, which is the Royal Institute for International Affairs, started up basically by the international bankers of the City of London, in cahoots with uh, with Washington, New York, and they also created the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, and set up a plan basically to build on the old British Empire system of a, the same kind of standardized system across the planet with free trade, which is really restricted trade. It's only for international corporations only and for their own big partners, of course, uh, the top, of course and also to do with the free movement of labor across the world, and also for the big boys themselves to own all of the resources across the planet. And we're well, well into this whole path now. This is a century of change, remember? And uh, all their big plans have to take uh, come in, out into the open in this century. And they're all, it's already happening, in fact, as we morph in the great transition, as they call it, into this whole system planned a long time ago. So help yourself to all the audios and information. And uh, remember, too, you bring me to you. I'm not backed by advertisers. I don't sell anything outside the books and discs at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. And so I need your support. So if you want to buy them, you can go into cuttingthroughmatrix.com. And from the U.S. to Canada, you can use personal checks international postal money orders, you can use cash, or you can use PayPal across the world, Western Union, and MoneyGram. Remember, straight donations are awfully uh, welcome, as I say, PayPal as well. But we are going through incredible changes, and I remember back in the 70s reading articles in the mainstream from the CFR and from their organization in, in England, London, uh, to do with the global society. And the big players were all there, of course, at this international meeting held in London, and they were deciding who would run the culture for the whole world. Should it be the British system, uh, with their movies and all the rest of it, and the documentaries from the BBC, or should it be from the States, Hollywood, etc.? And they picked Hollywood. And that's all happened. 
because they had a whole series of events of cultural changes. They called them cultural revolutions to, to put through on the public generation by generation until they had them pretty well dysfunctional and dependent completely upon the government for everything that they needed to exist and survive. That's all happened. It's all happened in a short span of time. But most folk adapt, you see. They adapt and they don't realize it's intergenerational changes. And uh, as, as Darwin says, we're the most adaptable species on the planet. Literally, those who understand the sciences of the human sociology, uh, the psychology, your neuroscience, behaviorists, uh, they can make you do anything and you're the last one to figure out that the ideas you have are not yours at all. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix and talking about the system that you take for granted because you're born into it and it already exists, so it must be quite normal. That's, that's how you accept things. Everyone around you is the same. It must be normal because it's here. Uh, if it wasn't normal, there'd be some other kind of system. That's what you think. And you find too uh, that ancients talked about this too, ancient philosophers in Greece and other other places too, uh, down through the centuries, right up to the 20th, 21st century, they still talk about it too, how they can bring up whole groups of people with a fake reality if they have them in the right settings and secluded from other people. And Russell talked about it too. He says we can bring up children completely separate from the rest and tell them that snow is black. And wherever they go from there on and, and meet the other people outside, they'll always say that snow is black. And they'll always argue about it because they'll never accept it's white. Normal is whatever everyone else around you accepts as being the truth or fact or self-evident. So we're taught from birth, really, to be indoctrinated by the system that's already in abundance all around you. And it's a total system, a completely total system. Personally, I don't think feudalism ever deserted the planet, even though they had always talk about democracy and the fading away of feudalism and royalty, nobility, etc. I don't think that ever really, really occurred. I think the nobility were far too wise and I think they gave us democracy, basically, to, to, to help further their own agenda, in fact, because they created all the different avant-garde groups that would destroy the old cultures amongst the general population. It's been awfully effective. And then government steps in with more agencies to take control of the fallout. That's happened everywhere. But I think, so, too, that it stops them having revolutions and rebellions every so often because you, you vote the new guy in, hoping that it's going to be better than the last one. And in actual fact, you're voting the last guy out, you see. That's what democracy is based on, voting the last or the present people out and hoping for something better. You live in hope, you see. And the ones at the top had top... Um, Massive think tanks, worldwide think tanks on the go for over a century, well over a century, to do with the cultural changes they wanted to bring about. And they went really, you can't say overboard, there's no overboard today, everything goes. Uh, and, and in the 30s, they actually came out with a lot of this stuff, the 1930s, how they could alter, radically alter cultures to, to break the old system that kept the people together, made them unite at times to fight enemies, common enemies, including their own ability at times, 
and, uh, and that had to be destroyed. And so the end of the family unit was essential. The family also includes extended family. And when you've got an extended family, you've got a small tribe. So one person's in trouble, you all stand up for them. And that's how it used to be, you see. H.G. Wells talked about destroying this and why they had to do it. And he said eventually, when we've destroyed all of that, then each individual will be contacted directly by government instantaneously. And there'll be nobody around to stand in the way between the government and the person. I would call him the victim. That's happened. Here we are. So eugenics is a big, big part of it because they talked about this even in Plato's day, about why people knew certain things or could grasp certain things like geometry faster than other ones and had all the different theories about it. Today they simply call it eugenics and uh, superior uh, people, the the superman uh, and uh, all of that kind of stuff that was awfully popular in the 20th century to the present. But now, of course, they call it bioethics because because eugenics got a bad name, a bad rap after Hitler came along, you see. And uh, he started killing off what he claimed was the unfit, those who couldn't contribute to society and would pass their bad genes on down through generations for future problems. The same thing still happens today. The Bertrand Russell, who was also employed by MI5, MI6, he was involved in uh, top international groups that only uh, got orders from presidents and prime ministers at the time to set up a new post-World War II culture for the West. And he was into all of this kind of stuff, uh, even had experimental schools on the go in the 20s and 30s. Uh, by special charter, he could experiment with children, right down to pre-pubertal sex to see if they could hyperactive, the, the, make the, the, the sexual aspect of things hyperactive, hyperneurotic, you might say, and, and so that people would never be content with one person, which would mean they'd never mate for life with one person. That would end the family unit. And he also said, too, uh, that the state would bring up, give the morals to the the children through scientific indoctrination, while uh, with scientific indoctrination, the parents would simply be the economic providers for the child. That's happened today, too. That's all happened. And when these guys say things, it's not because they're just talking off the top of their head with uh, wish lists and things or dreams. They're talking about things they're already involved in and which were underway then, and then now they're, they're established. All these agencies are established today to deal with uh, culture and what kind of culture you'd have. But he also talked about the fact that techniques would be evolved. They're already working on them back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s to do with indoctrinations, continuous life education. That was a camouflage term they used. What they meant by that was um, you'd be upgraded all your life by the media. Through First through radio, then television came in big time, and they would use that to, and fiction too, lots of fiction and dramas, to alter your opinions about things and upgrade you into the new system step by step by step. That's all happened too. Monkey see, monkey do. And what he also touched on was um, the fact that the, the people, the, the great mass of people, you always find this with these people who are awfully elitist, um, the great mass of, of people to them is seen as that. They don't see individuals in, in the people, the working classes and so on. They see a mass of people, and they're always distrustful of them. They don't believe they could possibly be moral in any natural way at all. Moral to them means to obey the leaders at the top, implicitly, instantaneously. That's what they mean by morality. 
and they would give them new kinds of morals, etc. To first to destroy their whole system, and then to have government agencies come in, step in, and even grab their children, etc. If they weren't indoctrinating them properly or contaminating them with old-fashioned ideas, and he talked about all of this stuff. Strange enough, it was exactly the same as a communist uh, system too. They talked about the same thing, and it's the far left today. They still talk about the same stuff, and it's all financed by. Uh, the ones at the top, the international moneylenders themselves, they started up the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the Royal Society. But he said it would be absolutely um, impossible for government, impossible, he says, for government to, to bypass these techniques and not use them on the future generations to do with creating the types of, of general populations which would obey implicitly, as I say, uh, without uh, question. He said it would be impossible for governments not to, or to bypass the temptation to use them. Here's an article here. It says that the new eugenics engineering moral enhancements by embryo screening and selective abortion. And it says, recently Oxford philosophy professor Julian Savalescu, I've mentioned him before, moved his campaign for moral enhancement out of the ivory tower and into the mainstream. This month, Reader's Digest is carrying his article called It's our duty to have designer babies, and what, which he promotes the idea that people have a moral obligation to select ethically better children. By select, he means to screen embryos genetically to determine which will have superior moral traits. Now, everyone hears these things and reads these things, and they don't think. I'm sorry that people don't think about the wording of things. They all think they know what things mean, but it's in a very vague way when you come down and ask them, what does morality mean to you? What does it mean? Does it mean getting on with your neighbors, not killing them? What does it mean? And superior moral traits, you see. Now, morality is simply plastic. Morality itself is plastic. And it can be bent in any shape they want to the top. They give you different moralities down through the ages, you see. But generally you'll find that natural morality uh, has developed by itself and not by scientists or kings or whatever, uh, or priesthoods, to keep everything working without, as I say, killing each other or stealing from each other and so on, causing disruption and chaos. What they're saying here, moral traits, is obedience, quiet obedience, uh, as a workhorse, basically, at the bottom, and to, to obey the system, those who rule the system. I've mentioned uh, Charles Galton Darwin so many times, but you've got, to, you've got to read his book on the next million years. It's called The Next Million Years. It says, as a story, I find this suggestion troubling. They seem to parallel the misguided attempts of the eugenics movement of the early 20th century, which promoted the artificial selection of individuals by controlling reproduction. This led not only to compulsory sterilization laws in many U.S. states, but also to the Nazi campaign to kill the disabled, during which physicians murdered more than 200,000 people. Remember the communists too, uh, you know, they, they actually killed a whole class of people off. They killed over 100 million were slaughtered. Because they, they claimed in their ideology they didn't belong. In his article, Savilescu tries to assure us that the new eugenics that he is proposing is essentially different from the early eugenics movement. The objectionable feature of the early movement, he claims, was its compulsory nature, while the new eugenics is voluntary, he says. Isn't that nice? And the crafty sods, eh? 
says, however, if Savitlowski convinces us that designing moral babies is an obligation, how long will it remain voluntary? In 2008, he was singling out a, singing a different tune. In an article that Savitlowski co-authored, he advocates coercion. He says, if safe moral enhancements are ever developed, there are strong reasons to believe that their use should be obligatory. Like education or fluoride in the water, since those who take them are least likely to be inclined to use them. That is, safe effect of moral enhancement would be compulsory. His recent insistence that moral enhancement would be voluntary might just be window dressing to make his views more palatable. But even if it were voluntary, his proposal to improve the human species morally by genetically selecting the most moral individuals is fraught with problems, both philosophical and practical. And I'll touch on them when I come back after this break. Hi folks, I'm back cutting through the matrix, going through eugenics and a, a later article here recent article about uh, the same old deal of altering human behavior through manipulating their genes. And also, it really has to do too with uh, compulsory abortion. It doesn't mention it here. But of course, if they determined your genes are faulty, if this particular gene in combination with other genes might just make you antisocial, as they call anybody who complains about government, then down, down the tube you go. Or down, you're flushed down the toilet. That's it. Anyway, it says, the science of which it rests is shaky. Savulescu, which is a Savile, basically, it's con, you know, claims that because of advances in genetics, we now know that most psychological characteristics are significantly determined by certain genes. You see? This is what they claim. This claim is not scientifically proven. The early eugenics movement also claims scientific status for overblown claims about hereditary, and most scientists now see it as pseudo-scientific. I don't think they do when you hear them talking privately. They just don't want to say it in public because they still believe that. Even if some behaviors are biological, they're influenced by many genes. The idea that we can produce more moral humans by choosing this particular gene and eliminating another is simplistic and does not do justice to the real science of genetics. If humans are largely marionettes of our DNA without any real moral choices, as Savileski implies, then it's hard to know why he thinks we have any real moral duties or obligations at all. So this is the latest theory that, that uh, really every thought that you have, every behavior that you have, is just the end result of all your genes and, and your DNA uh, competing with each other for supremacy. That, that's a totality, it's called you. I'm not kidding, that's what they believe. If morality is merely the product of random mutations occurring over eons of evolutionary time, then morality is subjective and changes over time. The Harvard biologist O.E. Wilson and the philosopher of science Michael Ruse have famously stated that uh, ethics as we understand it is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate. If this is so, then Savulescu's moral imperative, the duty to have designer babies, evaporates. It's an illusion. There's no such thing as moral enhancement because there's no goal towards which to improve. What's number three is what specific moral traits should we promote? If both uh, altruism and selfishness are biological traits bequeathed on us by evolution, then what rational grounds do we have to prefer one to the other? Savlescu and I agree that altruism is superior to selfishness, but James Watson, one of the most famous geneticists of all time, advised young scientists to be selfish. 
Maybe Watson would select DNA to make people selfish, while Savalescu would choose altruistic DNA. Now, don't forget, too, you're talking about predators and survival. And remember, going back to Charles Galton Darwin, who was one of the top eugenicists, he also said the same thing, that we, the elites, mustn't alter ourselves. We must remain wild. Now, here what he meant was wild and cruel, if necessary, in order for survive, to survive, personal survival. They weren't altruistic, you understand? But he says the rest of the public will alter them, he says, because they won't need the survival capabilities, because the state will be making all their decisions for them. That's where we are today. Think about it. Savilescu, ironically, assumes that the very humans in need of moral enhancement will make wise moral decisions about genetic selection. The selection he's proposing is itself ethically controversial because it involves embryo screening and selective abortion. In concrete terms, Savilescu is proposing killing human embryos that are deemed genetically less moral and preserving those deemed more moral. It's just the same old eugenics thing, that the ones, the, the fit and the unfit. You see, so it's all how we, how we classify it depends on who you are at the top, who's making all the decisions. Anyway, says he applauds Savalescu's goal of making people more loving and moral, but she going into religion, you know. However, this program undermines itself because it strips away the true meaning of love and morality. What it really means is my DNA tells me that I should select DNA that makes people more moral. My response, my DNA does not tell me that, and even if it did, why should I listen to a bunch of chemicals? And ain't that the truth, eh? Ain't that the truth? But this isn't just a little blurb in a paper. This is, again, a professor and uh, from Oxford pushing his stuff because it's a big, big movement on behalf of the elites who run the world. And what they do, just like the top Ivy League universities in the States and elsewhere, they select and recruit uh, they're, they're out of their own, you might say for the next generation, the next generation, to push these things further and further and further. And believe you me, they will not ask for, and they have never asked in the past for volunteers for all their experiments. The experiments have all been done on most of the public without them even knowing. And that, that is a fact. And also, this article ties in with it. It's called Human Exceptionalism. Psychiatric patients are euthanized in the Netherlands. Now, they were the first country to come out with euthanasia. And now they have these vans that can go up to your home. Uh, if the local doctors refuse to kill you, the government steps in and, and bumps you off anyway. Of course, they'll harvest your organs make a killing as well. But it says Santorium uh, got into trouble a few months ago for making some pointed criticism of euthanasia in the Netherlands. As the author pointed out at the time, his details were somewhat off, but the substance of his critique was spot on. Simply stated, euthanasia has taken Dutch medical ethics off a vertical moral cliff, to the point that psychiatric patients are sometimes terminated by their doctors or psychiatrists. Now, that's exactly what they claim the Nazis did. Exactly the unfit they went for, psychiatric patients and so on. Latest example, it says, according to the Dutch media, 13 psychiatric patients were assisted in suicide last year from the Dutch news story. A total of 13 patients were helped to end their lives last year, compared with just two in 2010. According to new figures from the regional euthanasia monitoring groups. Euthanasia monitoring groups, for goodness sake. This is normal now. Doesn't take long, does it? Once you knock down the pillars, the roof caves in. Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. 
because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix and talking about euthanasia and eugenics. And there's so many things on the go right now, all tied together, because we're under world, the world managers. We have world managers now at the United Nations, covering every aspect of all of this, including overpopulation, as they like to call it, and all the hype they do with unsustainability, etc., etc. Oh, too many elderly, we must kill them off, and all that. They're just article after article being churned out right now, as they get the idea through your heads, until it becomes familiar to you. And then when it happens to you in your area, you'll think, oh, I guess they had to. It's normalized, you see. Anyway, it says a total of 13 psychiatric patients were helped at the end of their lives last year, compared with just two in 2010, according to new figures from the regional euthanasia monitoring groups. Euthanasia amongst people in the early stages of dementia also rose, rose last year to 49 cases, double of that of 2010. So see, they're going to hit people who are going to cost them cash down the road. You understand that? This is what the World Health Organization is on about right now. And all the so-called environmentalists, too. I just watched an article, a little video presentation with some guy labeled an, uh, an environmentalist. I mean, what, what is an environmental? We all live in an environment. But anyway, he's on about all of the people that's coming down the road. are going to be old. It's going to cripple us all, blah, 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 blah. What are we going to do about it? So they're getting you all prepared for euthanasia, folks. Anyway, it says the figures are in line with a general upward trend. The total number of euthanasia cases rose 18% last year to 3,695, and the number of cases has doubled since 2006, the report said. It says don't expect the media to care while they're owned by the Royal Institute of International Affairs. When they reference Dutch euthanasia, readers' viewers are always assured that medicalized killing is tightly controlled under strict conditions, as the story quoted above does, even as it cites the euthanasia of psychiatric and dementia patients. And it says here, Belgium has also legalized euthanasia and a medical journal reported one psychiatric patient as well as several disabled patients euthanized and then subjected to consensual organ harvesting. So you're profitable too. Uh, they can bump you off cheaply and, and don't treat you at all. That saves them cash. Then they can sell your organs off. The Swiss allows suicide clinics and its su- Supreme Court established a right to assisted suicide for the mentally ill. And they're all pushing this for the mentally ill. You get a little bit of depression. As a teenager, go and bump yourself off. Here's the moral of the story. Once a society agrees that some suicides are good, the categories of the killable never stops expanding. And that's what's happened in previous times. We're called nasty and evil. And here we are. But it's all done scientifically now. It's hygienic, you know. Science makes everything hygienic. The term itself. That's how it works. And then... This article here, too, uh, a New York organ donor network pressured hospital staffers to declare patients brain dead so they could sell their body parts. And even hired coaches to train staffers how to be more persuasive. A bombshell lawsuit charged yesterday. I've mentioned this one before and other ones like it because Canada does the same thing. We have teams that fly in to try and convince grieving patient relatives right at the, you know, the, the, the vulnerable time. How they're going to save this little picture of this person here, which has nothing to do with the real person that the organs are going to go to, you know, that kind of stuff. 
and it says the federally funded non-profit used a quota system and leaned heavily on the next of kin to sign consent forms when patients were not registered as organ donors. The suit charged they're playing God, said the plaintiff Patrick McMahon, 50, an Air Force combat veteran, a nurse practitioner, etc., etc. I'll put that up again tonight for those who want to tie these things in. Now, government always puts itself out as promoted, again, because they have public relations firms working on everything to put over something on you. But, uh, and public relations is the term, remember, for propaganda. But they have massive marketing companies that are PR, propaganda firms that will distort perception and make things palatable to you. But anyway, they also try to always show how good and accurate government is, because it's awfully essential you have it all, especially when it's growing like cancer is all over the place, just more and more departments. This is, this is Australia. The, health, the Australian Health Department withdraws inaccurate anatomy posters. Listen to this one. This is government for you. Leave it to the bureaucrats. The federal health government has been forced to withdraw one of its aboriginal health posters after it was revealed to contain embarrassing errors about basic human organs. The poster, titled Female Human Anatomy, confuses the stomach with the lungs and incorrectly labels the ovaries as kidneys. It also has an arrow pointing to the intestines, but since calls it the stomach. The poster also shows two pancreases. That'd be great for diabetics. The poster is part of the government's Living Longer program aimed at improving the health outcomes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It was taken down from the campaign's website today. Opposition Indigenous Health Spokesman Andrew Laring uh, says the campaign has been severely undermined by the errors. You call these errors? Lack of attention to detail in these posters is an insult to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders that were the target audience for this material, Dr. Laring said. And it says, an Indigenous Health Minister, Warren Snowden, needs to immediately recall these inaccurate posters and correct them. Uh, Snowden's office says the Department of Health and Aging is currently in the process of recalling the inaccurate posters. It's unacceptable and shouldn't have gone out. I've asked for all affected posters to be recalled immediately, Mr. Snowden said in a statement. So uh, you can't. this is what government does if you leave it to them. They can't even get the anatomy correct. They screw up everything. To be honest with, even the simplest things. Mind you, with unlimited budgets, it's no problem. We don't notice at the bottom because they don't hand us our tab every week saying, you now owe so many millions because of them, all the money we've borrowed from the bankers. You know. That's how things really work. And you understand too that you are in a century of change. Uh, the bank crashes were simply part of a strategy to get us into austerity. Austerity is to where you've been, you have to be taught drastically and radically to, to consume less, to have no uh, extra spending money. It'll all go in essentials only, and even essentials are going to be awfully, awfully expensive, and you'll get less for a lot, and it'll cost you an awful lot more. That's why the big electric companies are not worried about uh, cutting down or cutting down, cutting down. No, because they're charging you double and triple and quadruple as you go along. And it says Britain's, it says George Osborne's CO2 tanks, because we only tax you for the air debris, you see, CO2, will double UK electricity bills. It's a nasty shock in store for the British householder when a new carbon tax comes into force. It's fast approaching, it says, 
if not largely unnoticed, is yet another massive shot the government has in store for us with its weirdly distorted energy policy. Surprising to see what an abnormally high proportion of the electricity need to keep our lights on has lately been coming from coal-fired power stations, which we want to close down. Last Wednesday evening, for instance, this was over 50%, with only 1.3% coming from wind power. Wind power is a joke. Yet by next March, we'll learn five of our largest coal-fired plants capable of supplying a fifth of our average power needs are to be shut down much earlier than expected under the, 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 the European Union, this, this megalithic Soviet Union parliament, the Anti-Pollution Directive. One reason why these plants are being hammered through their uh, remaining quota of hours allowed by the EU is that a new UK tax comes into force next April, which aims to make fossil fuel power significantly more expensive. In 2010, George Osborne announced his intention to pose from April 2013 a carbon floor price of £16 on every tonne of CO2 emitted by British industry, uh, rising to £30 a tonne by 2020 by £70 a tonne by 2030. This is an explicit purpose of the taxes to make the cost of electricity from fossil fuels so uncompetitive compared with renewables, whoever that is, that it will, in the Treasury's words, drive 30 to 40 billion pounds worth of investment into low carbon research or sources such as wind and nuclear. On paper, the effect of Osborne's new tax on electric bills looks devastating. Then they give the latest Department uh, of Energy's climate change uh, uh, figures. It says the power plants burned 40 million tons of coal in 2011, emitting 116 million tons of CO2. This is all abstract, uh, just guessing. They also generate 175,000 gigawatt hours for gas from gas, at just over half a ton of CO2 per gigawatt. At 16 pounds a ton, the CO2 would cost 3.5 billion pounds on top of our total current wholesale electricity cost of some 19 billion pounds. Thus, the new impost would uh, represent nearly 20% added to our electric bills next year and almost double them by 2030. Canada's gone in the same direction, by the way. So anyway, you're getting hammered, and eventually it's going to go up and up and up, and everything's passed on to you, remember. Everything's passed on to you, eventually. And all the things transported to uh, the burns fuel, etc., carbon taxes, carbon, all the prices for everything go up. And this is the world they've planned for you all. Post-industrial, you're post-consumer, and you're into authoritarianisms. You're under authoritarian societies now, systems now where they just decree something at the top, and and no matter what havoc it creates, it's simply uh, shoved on you instantaneously, and then the big boys come up and hammer you if you won't comply. You see, it's war against you all, if you don't understand what war is. There's many forms of war. I mentioned, too, about the banks uh, expanding their their goals. I'll put this up on it tonight again too, because we're at the age where and stage where Carol Quigley talks about the central banking systems would all coalesce together under the umbrella uh, of the the world banking system and and under the Bank for International Settlements. With the dawn of the revolution, central banking where the Bank of Canada, the U.S. Federal Reserve Board, and eventually the European Central Bank will exert more influence over global economy than government, business, or consumers. I'll put that up again tonight as well for those who want to see it. Now, these fusion centers, 
as they call all this information gathering center. There's so many of them across the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere. Multi-billion dollar scheme set up intelligence fusion centers after 9-11 and has failed to catch any terrorists, the Senate report reveals, it says. So the, it says... Um, a multi, multi-billion dollar information sharing network of 7-7 so-called fusion centers violated Americans' civil rights and failed to produce any valuable intelligence on terrorism, according to a scathing Senate report released Wednesday. What began as an attempt to put local, state, federal officials in the same room analyzing the same intelligence has instead cost huge amounts of money for data mining software, 6,000 laptops, flat-screen televisions, and in Arizona, two $45,000 fully-equipped Chevrolet Tahoes that are used for commuting investors found. Investigators found R N forty one a page bipartisan report is an unflinching evaluation of what the Department of Homeland Security has held up as crown jewels of its security efforts. The report underscores the reality of post nine eleven Washington. Since national security programs tend to grow, they never shrink, even when their money and manpower far surpasses the actual subject of terrorism. Much of this money went for ordinary local crime fighting. Disagreeing with the critical conclusions of the report, Homeland Security says it is outdated, inaccurate, and too focused on information produced by the program, ignoring benefits to local governments from their involvement with federal intelligence officials. Because of a convoluted grants process set up by Congress, Homeland Security officials don't know how much they have spent in their decades-long effort to set up so-called fusion centers in every state. They don't know. Who's kidding who? They know. Government estimates range from less than $300 million to $1.4 billion in federal money, plus much uh, more invested by state and local governments. Despite that, Congress is unlikely to pull the plug. That's because whether or not it stops terrorists, the program means politically important money for state and local governments. Well, that's not the reason at all. The reason it's up there, folks, has nothing to do with 9-11. It's for the century of change, and it's for watching and monitoring all of you. Because this is the new system, folks. They had to get it in using 9-11. That's why they had 9-11. That's what it's all about. And it was planned long ago, including all these fusion centers, before 9-11 was even hit. All they needed was the Pearl Harbor excuse, right? To get everybody on board with them. An article tonight, too, I'll put up is, is about... Um, you to understand that the West, Britain especially, and, and America... In Canada, had lots of folk fleeing Hitler, uh, the rise of Nazism. Most of them were ardent communists and actually uh, leaders in communist uh, country uh, to, to promote co- communism in the countries were heads. And all of them became professors in the, the Canada, the States and Britain too. This guy says he hated Britain and he excused Stalin's genocide, but it was the hero of the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and the Guardian newspaper, Eric Hobsbawm. He says a traitor too. It says, on a Monday evening, the BBC altered its program schedule to broadcast an hour-long tribute to an old man who died aged 95 with fawning contributions from the likes of historian Simon Shema and Labour peer Melvin Bragg. Next day, the left-leaning Guardian filed, uh, filled not only the front page and the whole of an inside page, but also devoted almost its entire G2 supplement to the news. The Times devoted a leading article to the death and a two-page obituary. 
You can imagine, given all the coverage, in fact, that Tony Blair and Ed Miliband also went out of the way to pay tribute that the nation was in mourning. Well, the Miliband brothers, uh, their dad taught in the university. He was a communist, also flew the Nazis, and they also had relatives running the Soviet Union. Yeah, I do, I do believe, uh, not believe that more than one in 10,000 people in this country had so much as heard of Eric Hobsbawm, the fashionable Hampstead Marxist who was the cause of, of all this attention. He'd, he'd after all been in the open, uh, been open in his disdain for ordinary mortals. Now, this guy was attached to the different schools, of, like the Frankfurt School and so on, that were made up of certain people who also had to flee Hitler. And they had their own school in, in Germany, and they fled it and brought his head up in Britain and in the States. And they're all, they all deem themselves high intellectuals. And they, they were teaching a form of Marxism too, where they believed that the ordinary peasant, you see, was just always going to be a dumb, stupid peasant, and that they themselves should run the world, just like the elite are doing today. Same thing. Awfully snobbish they were. Hosborn came to Britain as a refugee from Hitler's Europe before the war, but as he said himself, he wished only to mix with intellectuals. I refused all contact with the suburban petite bourgeoisie, which I naturally regarded with contempt, he says. If the name Hosborn rings a bell at all, people might recollect it was also the name of Julia Hobsbawm, a public relations propaganda expert who, in collaboration with the future Mr. Gordon Brown, was one of the spin doctors who sold new labour to the country. There's a world of difference between the ideology of Julia's sleek modern new labour ideas and her father's hard-nosed Stalinism, but one of the things they had in common was contempt for ordinary people. And it's, it's more to it, actually. If you, I'll put this up tonight by the way, this link and his Wikipedia page, but there's a certain particular trait a lot of them have in common with each other beyond just communism, folks, that also teaches everybody else is inferior. Hobsbawm took part in most of the extraordinary conversations um, ever on British television, and uh, speaking in '94 to the author Michael Ignatieff about the fall of the Berlin Wall five years earlier, he was asked how he felt about his earlier support for the Soviet Union. If communism had achieved its aims, but the cost of say 15 to 20 million people, as opposed to the 100 million people it actually killed in Russia and China, would Hobsbawm have supported it? His answer was a single word: yes. This guy's a professor, teaching his crap to future murderers. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting from the Matrix and we'll see if Aaron from Nevada is still hanging on there. Are you there, Aaron? Hey, buddy, how you doing? Let me hear. Not bad at all. How are you doing? All right, man. Hey, I am wondering, uh, you know anything on this uh, Georgia Guidestones and their 500 million uh, population level was desired and all this stuff? You know, is, is that legit or what? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Uh, all, all they know is that um, it was put up by the local Freemasons there and uh, and financed by a guy using a fake name, obviously. But uh, it was put up by Freemasons, and it's definitely in tune with the whole UN population reduction agenda, the elitist agenda of killing off the unfit, and just leaving the the, the proper kind of folk alive to to go into the new age. Yeah. Okay. And secondly, I heard you mention before uh, 
you don't have like XCIA agents on your show, etc. Could you please tell me where uh, what reference that might be to? That I don't have them on. Well, I don't have them on. I've, I've mentioned it many times because I don't believe you can have XCIA on. If you belong to an intelligence service, and this is under all NATO countries, U.S., Canada, Britain, elsewhere, you sign an official secrets act. And that, that official secrets act generally says that you can't speak about anything that you were involved in uh, for a minimum of 30 years after retirement. And it gives you all the different penalties if you do. They actually enforce this, naturally. So you're sworn. I was listening to this other show, and they have always had like an ex-CIA present CFR member on there. And, uh, well, Mm -hmm. seems to be quite popular, but uh, can can you trust what they say? Well, I, I had to be awfully suspicious of what they say. Are their intentions of what they're saying, or are they ex at all? Are they still in the same business? Don't forget that the Patriot Radio had Bo Greitz out for a long time. He had his own show for years. And uh, uh, he said himself on his show that uh, he left the Special Forces and the, and the Pentagon with hip pocket orders, he says. And he, he was on for years on uh, on the radio. And when 9-11 happened, it was on television, they showed it in Canada, he was going up the congressional steps, he was, he was stopped by a reporter who asked him, uh, who are you going to see? I'm going to see the congressman, he says, and tell him, he says, it's, it's these crazy right-wing uh, um, um, patriots that are behind this, this, the 9-11 takedown. That's what he said. He says, the, cra- the crazies who see black helicopters and, and run around in camel. Yeah, that's what he said. Um, have you ever been a Freemason yourself? No. I just spelled that myth that I heard uh, on the internet. And thank you. Yeah. No, I've never been a Mason. I've been approached to join them. I won't join them. And you don't have to to find out all that they're about. There's enough information out there, you know. Well, again, I like your approach. You don't have to pound the fit a table with both two fists in order to get the information out there to educate people. I really appreciate the uh, the contrast. Yes, and all I use basically is stuff that's already published. So it's not they're not making this stuff up. And uh, like the article yesterday was about a mainstream article in Canada. Uh, why are Freemasons pushing the, the, this um, Masonic chip to chip all the children across the country, the U.S., Canada, and Britain, elsewhere, and their fingerprint and DNA? <laughs> What's that got to do with a, a little band of merry men who want self-improvement? Why are they doing this? But they're certainly doing things like this, of course. But they do run local governments and so on, and they're sworn to secrecy, and they help each other up the ladder. And they're often good, if you're, if you're a mason, they're often good to be in business with because they'll make sure all the business comes to you and not the guy next door who's not a mason. They actually say that themselves. It's a gang, if you like. You know. But thanks for calling from Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada. It's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.